feel like I'm experiencing things when they're happening instead of having this voice in the back of my head constantly running with these distractions about food thoughts. And I, I couldn't be more grateful for your program and for everything this past year because it's just been such a I'm living a different life now than I did for 15 years and in, in all the best ways. Welcome to Behind the Binge, the podcast where we bring forth much-needed conversations about binge eating recovery and ditching diet culture. I'm your host, Marissa Kaimilik, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and binge eating coach. This is our space to dive into practical tips to heal from binge eating, challenge your diet culture beliefs, discuss the nuances of intuitive eating, and empower you to recover. Let's start exploring what's behind the binge. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited to be joined with a previous member of my group coaching program. They were in the program when it was previously called Binge Binge Freedom Breakthrough. Totally forgot it for a second. And then it was rebranded into Behind the Binge Academy over the summer. But same program. I onboarded them last November, and they recently graduated from a step-down program called Behind the Binge Society just a couple months ago, and they were open to sharing their story. So join us as we hear Caroline's journey through binge eating from the very young time of their life in third grade through where they are now in grad school moving into a potential PhD, and feeling free with their relationship with food and their body. I want to let you know that Caroline goes by they, them pronouns, and that we do touch on subjects around fasting and gender identity, sexual orientation, and risk factors within the LGBTQ community that perpetuates eating disorders. So if any of the topics surrounding this feel triggering for you on your journey, go ahead and skip it. But if not, this is an incredible episode and I can't wait for you to hear more about this firsthand experience from Caroline. All right. Thank you so much, Caroline, for being on the podcast with us. Of course. Yay. Well, I really appreciate you being open to sharing your story because I know it's a super vulnerable thing. Even whenever you were joining group coaching, I remember you mentioning how it was hard to even reach out for help because opening up and talking about it in and of itself can sometimes be really scary and also make things real. And so now that kind of full circle a year later, here you are sharing it on a podcast, can you even imagine you doing this a year ago? No, absolutely not. I mean, there was such a long period of time where I internally recognized that like, this is something I want to change in my life. This is something I need to change in my life. But I was not even willing to say out loud to even a therapist. I was in therapy. I did not say a word about struggling with food because it was just this thing that I felt like was an internal flaw that I had to work on with me and didn't need to seek out help with. And so it's it's so nice that I corrected that way of thinking and I'm so much better for it. Oh, oh my gosh. I know so many who feel that feeling like it's your fault, it's your responsibility, it's a problem with you. And that can keep us really stuck in that cycle and also creates this narrative and the stigma that you somehow have to be sick enough 
quote unquote, to get help, like you need a diagnosis of some sort. And so I'm excited to get into really how you got to the place to open up and ask for help. But before we dive into that, let's just let the viewers know a bit about who you are, what you do, where you live, because it's very interesting. (laughs) and, And then we'll go from there. Hi, I'm Caroline. I'm from the United States, but for the last two and a half years, I've been living in Madrid, Spain. I'm currently in law school here studying criminal law. I'm doing it in Spanish and banging my head against the wall every day, but we're moving through. (laughs) Oh my God. You are so, honestly, you can do much more than I could ever do. I could never put myself in that type of immersion into the language. I mean, it's hard enough just going to somewhere where it's not your first language and being immersed in it in just normal day-to-day life. So studying law in your native language, I'm sure is hard enough. So honestly, amazing. You're so resilient through that. (laughs) I think it's awesome to watch you go through uh, your studies. So when you, well, let me back up a second. I was going to say when you were joining the program, but I want to talk about what your journey was like before even coming to this realization that you were struggling with your relationship with food. What was your relationship with food and your body growing up? Yeah, I thought about this and I realized that I cannot quite pinpoint a before having problems with binge eating in my life. I remember being, I mean, seven years old. I have specific memories of like boxes of popsicles. (laughs) Like I would eat an entire Mm -hmm. box of popsicles. That does not feel good. I did not want to eat it. It was that out of control feeling. It was that a classic binge, but I just didn't have the language or the knowledge to identify that this was any sort of disordered behavior. I just thought I was being a greedy child almost or something like that. So I always struggled with binge eating, always in secret. And I came from a house that was very restrictive in types of processed foods that were allowed in. And I think that was part of it is that I remember we had these popsicles I'm talking about are low-cal popsicle things like, and that's the one kind of treat dessert type food that I remember always having. And I think because it was the only one we really had, I just gravitated towards it. So I know that growing up, I just, I really had demonized this food in a way that early on led me to binge it. I mean, I, I cannot remember before there. And then I had two older brothers and I was not a um, particularly thin child. And so there's a little bit of classic body image stuff coming from them. Just nothing, nothing severe, but the classic. I mean, they're older brothers. They're going to. But it all gets internalized the same, right? Any sort of narrative that you're different or wrong and that that may be within your control Mm -hmm. creates this idea that we have to control food or that we need to restrict in in different ways, whether that's restricting our ability to show up in the world or it's restricting actual foods and mental food rules in and of itself without actually being on a diet at seven years old can perpetuate the binge eating like you maybe remember from the popsicle story. So I think I was limited in the foods I ate in my household, although I wasn't ever specifically placed on that diet. It was very much Mm -hmm. like I was considered the heavier child of the three and the house was very limited in any sort of processed food. I'm I'm really struggling to remember anything besides these low-cal popsicles that would be considered processed. I was from what at the time would be considered this perfect, healthy environment for a child to grow up in, but the reality was it was extremely limiting and it really caused a binary between good food and bad food at an early age. Absolutely. And that just shows how you don't have to be necessarily under eating or restricted on the amount of food you're eating to create a reaction of, uh, to have a reaction of binge eating created inside of you. 
with that scarcity mindset. The scarcity mm-hmm. mindset alone of this food is limited or this food is off limits, it's bad or this is good can fuel us losing control around them. And it just is an internal response to scarcity to keep us safe. So after you moved out of the house and you were growing up, is there anything that you remember really started to develop more of a disordered, like an intentionally disordered relationship with food with dieting or manipulating your body in any way? I think I began really specifically dieting around middle school or early high school. I was a volleyball player throughout my entire life and up through um, college. And I always, first off, a volleyball uniform is not going to allow you to escape any sort of body image issues you may be having. We're talking spandex and pretty much a long sleeve Under Armour jersey, like skin tight. And I know that I was personally struggling with the reality that my body was larger than many of my teammates' bodies. And I just couldn't really navigate that in a healthy way. And I remember, I think my first dieting was really inspired by wanting to look smaller while playing my sport, feeling like, you know, the audience there saw me as a larger body than the people around me. The uniform didn't allow me to kind of ignore that while I was playing. So I think that's the earliest inspiration for dieting I can remember. And it was always cyclical. I had a lot of weight fluctuation all through middle school, high school, and up until college. With, I'd say annually, I would go a couple months of heavy restriction, and then that would bounce back into a couple months of heavy binging, and my weight would fluctuate regularly through that. So yeah, I mean, it was was constant, and it was very tied to my athletic career once I got older, once I got out of my popsicle phase, I got into my volleyball phase, and that was really what it was anchored to. Yeah, I feel like so many people can relate to that struggle with having an identity that may be tied to athletics and the perpetuated ideals in society that athletes have a certain look to them. And especially when you're in a sport where there's aesthetics involved and volleyball isn't specifically an aesthetic sport, like, you know, you may think of with wrestling where you have to have certain Mm -hmm. weight classes or ice skating where there is a whole idea about being a certain size, but you are wearing tight, small clothing and you're on a court on display. And Mm -hmm. it's just no matter what the sport is, unfortunately, I think those ideals are frequently perpetuated to a fault where you may not be eating enough to even fuel your best performance. And so it's it's not a winning battle. We may get the fit or athletic looking body based on the ideals of society, but underperform because we're underfueling our body to give us the energy we need. Did you feel like the cyclical nature was tied to the seasons in which you were playing and the sports? Did you ever feel like, oh, okay, now I can just maintain and it fell out of it? Or was it that sort of all or nothing? All right, now I'm going to take a break and go on cheats. Uh, how, how did that play out for you? I know that the cyclical nature of my weight fluctuation was very annual because in the fall for volleyball was the high school season. My high school didn't really, I mean, we had a football team, but they weren't very active. Volleyball was kind of the crowd sport at my high school. And which was cool. It's great. You know, women's sports getting a lot of attention. It's nice and not too common. But um, it was still something where I knew that my friends, um, my classmates, maybe my crushes were going to be in the stands. And I, I felt like I was very much on display. The uniform definitely did not help that. And I always would be at a lower weight point throughout that season, but I would be under fueling significantly. I remember I always struggled with getting cramps, like leg cramps and stuff, because I just didn't have enough nutrients in my body. 
And I would really restrict before games. I wouldn't really eat much on game days, which is like really counterintuitive. But it was just I knew that I was about to put this jersey on in front of a couple hundred people that I Mm. kind of cared Mm. how they thought of me. And and that was really the main trigger of it was a high school volleyball season. Um, The rest of the year, I was playing in a more travel-based, tournament-based style where the only people that knew me were my coaches and teammates. So there wasn't as much pressure for me to be viewed or like present a certain type of body type. Wow. And so you can really see that the difference between when you're around someone or other people you may know, the fear of the perception is what was fueling that behavior for you. So do you remember a time in which you feel like that belief system was created inside of you where maybe someone said something or implied something that created an internalized fear of what other people may think when they look at you? I know that through my sport, in volleyball, I was a libero, which is um, similar to a goalie. If you don't know much about volleyball, it's a defensive position in a different color jersey with a whole different set of rules. And one thing specific about liberos is that they're the one volleyball position that's allowed to be small. Volleyball players need to be tall, need to be these big athletic creatures jumping high and hitting hard. But a libero is needs to be close to the ground, is usually the most petite person on the team. And I didn't really fit that ideal. I was, even when I had a lower body fat, I was always very stocky. I was never like a thin build. And I just really struggled with knowing that whenever I looked around at my position, that I didn't look like the rest of them did. And when I looked at my teammates, I was usually the heaviest one on the team, if not. And if if not, I was close. And I just felt like I really compared myself too much to other people in my sport where petiteness was associated with my position. Mm, Like this idea that there should be a certain sized person in that role. Yeah, definitely. Um, There's, it's kind of a bit of a joke that like, you need to be tall to play volleyball or you're a libero and you're, you know, you have one chance if you're small and that smallness, although they're talking about height generally, it really does translate to a fact that, I mean, when I got to my college team, I was one of five liberos and the other four were maybe half my size. They were all very, very petite people. And it does tend to ring true. I don't know how much of that is external pressure on them to be that size and how much of that is just coincidental, but it definitely was a common trend for my position to be the really small, lean, quick type of build. And I never quite fit that. Oh, yeah. That must have been really hard because you're battling that maybe love for the sport. It sounds like on top of battling your own body and and how you're showing up. And so I can imagine that was incredibly difficult to navigate as you're evolving into adulthood. I mean, moving from high school into college sport and that continuing to be perpetuated not only in diet culture around us, but within the sport itself. Mm -hmm. So at what point did you feel your relationship with food and your body began to evolve to a place where you noticed, you were like, okay, this is something I need to work through and maybe reach out for help even before you actually did reach out. I think my freshman year of college would be when it really got much more intense. I I started, I gained some weight my freshman year and I just, something about that really tore down my self-concept. Like it, it was just really, really challenging for me, which is interesting because I had been used to this cycle of gaining and losing, but I'd say I gained a little bit more than normal. It really wasn't an extreme amount, but it was enough that I felt 
like that stigma of the freshman 15 that I had lived up to this idea and like, oh no, what would they think of me? I'm supposed to be an athlete. All these things came together to make me really, really hard on myself and try to lose weight and never in healthy ways. I never had any concept of reframing my mindset around food. And maybe that was the way that I could balance this out. It was always, how do I restrict to what can I cut? What can I not eat? What what meal can I skip? How can I hide that I'm not drinking the protein shake we're all assigned to drink after lifts? Like it was just things like that, that I would have to like constantly remove what I was consuming. And I think it was that it was that that slight weight gain. It really wasn't that notable, but it was enough that I was really more critical of my body in that time period. And it just spiraled in that year. And then afterwards throughout, once I stopped playing volleyball, I didn't play all four years. Um, And when I stopped and I was no longer an athlete, I didn't need a minimum amount to sustain the workouts I was having every day. And when that minimum went away, I just got into fasting like no other in a way that was so detrimental because it was like, the truth was I, I, I wasn't pushing my body to an athletic performance anymore. And so the amount that it needed just to bare minimum function to survive dropped. And I just went in a big spiral of fasting. And I would say it was the fasting was when I was like, this is not okay. Like I was looking at the people around me and how they were living their lives. And I was lucky to have mostly friends with healthy dynamics with their eating. And I was just like, this is not how I'm living. And it's not how I want, like the way I'm living is not how I want to be living. And I can see all these examples of people who are seemingly at peace with food. And I'm sitting here restricting in a way that prevents me from living my life. And I just really yeah. want to change. That's awesome that you're able to reflect on that because the more we get into darker and deeper disordered behaviors, sometimes we lose our cognition, our cognitive ability to reflect, to look at things objectively, to observe those around us and notice that something's off. So it is really incredible that you had the ability to say, this is not how I want to live my life. And so what was going on for you when you finally did reach out for help? What were you feeling at that time that brought you to fill out the first application that I read that brought you into the program? During the COVID-19 quarantine in Madrid, it was very, very strict. We were on a literal lockdown where we were not allowed to um, leave our homes for any reason for about, well, Grocery stores were the only reason for about three months. And there's a lot of boredom, a lot of space to sit with thoughts that maybe had been pushed out by just keeping myself busy up until that point. And so during that quarantine, I just kind of started reflecting on mostly my university experience, thinking about, because I was coming straight out of it, and thinking about how many times I had just been so upset and had these like internal distractions around dieting and food and weight loss that kept me from enjoying that experience. I almost felt like I had cheated myself out of the reality that I had wonderful friends and great experiences in undergrad. I felt like I hadn't gotten to be present for a lot of them because I was so in my head about food and body. And so I had that realization during quarantine. And I remember following a lot of body positive, intuitive eating type accounts on Instagram and just kind of trying to put that in my feed more to kind of not allow myself to think it and then close that box and put it away. I was like, I want to be seeing this regularly. And I think about four or five months later was when I ended up reaching out and saying, okay, like I'm ready to actually tackle this. There was one major step where I said, 
I want to change this. And it was really just changing my social media feed was the first thing I did. I followed a lot, maybe 35 to 40 different accounts that were dietitians or just body positive influencers or just people doing intuitive eating that make a lot of posts about it. There's actually someone in the volleyball community, Victoria Garrick, who played volleyball at the University of Southern California. And she started a great conversation. She had binge eating disorder and she is now an intuitive eater and is very public about this journey. And she was sharing accounts that I started following one by one. And yours was either one that she shared or one that someone I followed shared. And yeah, I, I changed my feed, largely inspired by seeing one person from my specific circle of college volleyball athletes speaking openly about her experience. So. Wow. And I think it's Brene Brown who talks about the things that combat shame. And one of the ways of building shame resilience is contextualizing the experience, which means adding context to what it is that you're going through in ways of seeing that other people are going through it as well. And Mm -hmm. it makes that connection to it to where you're like, I'm not alone. And not only am I not alone, but if they can get through this, then so can I. And so it is clear that you saw something in Victoria, as an athlete, as a volleyball player, and probably in many other ways, and the relationship with food that you were like, okay, it is clear that there is another way that's within my reach. How do I get there? And you expanded your circle, brought in more context, and that helped build up that resilience, that power to say, I deserve more, and I'm going to go find how to get it and, and reach out. So I'm really proud of you for that. That's hard to do. It's incredibly hard. When you were reaching out, when you joined, what were those first few steps? What were the things that you realized were holding you into this restrict binge cycle? And how did you start to break them? I'd say the largest one was silence was that I was just not willing to talk about it with anyone. I mean, I was fortunate enough that I was in therapy regularly for about two years, talking through lots of things. Didn't make a peep about <laughs> this reality of struggle I was having with food. It was just like this this thing that I, I almost didn't even internally acknowledge. Why so, didn't you? I, gosh, I don't know. I think... I think there was a mix of things. I think one was that I was not diagnosed with anything because I had never talked about it to get diagnosed with anything. I mean, that's kind of a chicken or the egg situation. (laughs) um, I didn't feel like I had this legitimate title for what I was experiencing. Um, And also binge eating disorders not discussed in the way bulimia or anorexia or other types of eating disorders are discussed culturally. And I don't think I quite thought I fit the bill, which I did to a T. They're looking back at it. There is not a single, I mean, I was a very, I would say like classic case, yet I just didn't know enough to put myself in that group. And so I didn't really have the language to associate myself with to even start talking about it. Um, But I remember early on, I talked to my best friend. He was someone that I was so close with all through undergrad And I said, I was like, listen, I want to tell you something. Like, I just wanted, like, he knows everything about me and he did not know anything about this. And I said, I want you to know why I wasn't at this event. I want you to know what was going on this day. I want, and I I listed off all these things that I had done, all these times that I had faked a hangover to avoid eating. And I hadn't drank anything the night before, you know, like just like things that I had done in college that were really disordered ways of avoiding food publicly around him. And I just said, like, I need to tell you that this is what I've been doing. Like, I have been struggling and I want to address it. And so that was my real first step was telling my best friend, here is a list of 25 things that I did that you were there for that I was lying to you about. Like I, and I, that was a big thing for me. I was like, I don't want to be a liar. 
I don't want to, I don't want to be hiding this from people I love that are here to support me. I want to have this ability to be honest with them and speak about this thing I've been struggling with internally and stop making up excuses for my struggles that I'm having and the way they're coming off. And so that was probably my first thing was just talking for the first time, not even to anyone official, to my best friend, just kind of admitting what I'd been experiencing. Wow. And even in doing that, there's a risk that they won't get it or they'll perpetuate the same stigmas of shame around binge eating. Because you're exactly right when you talk about how eating disorders through different uh, diagnoses have different narratives surrounding them. And binge eating disorder actually hasn't been around all that long. Believe it, became an official diagnosis in 2013, pretty sure. It's very new. Mm. But even within the newness of the diagnosis, there's this idea that you can just stop eating. That's just your own willpower. Mm. And then they that evokes more shame of this is in your control, what's wrong with you, mm-hmm. rather than taking a step back to look at our body as taking care of us of like, what is my body telling me through this? So all that to just say, there's a risk in taking, in telling people. And so if anyone's listening is like, oh yeah, I want to tell people, but it's scary. That is so incredibly valid. And it sounds like, Caroline, you found someone you trusted mm-hmm. that you could take that first step with to open up. And so leaving that conversation, did it create a source of validation that you were seeking in, in order to, to move forward and really digging into the work in some way? Something really wonderful about this specific friend of mine is that I knew that once I had told him this and I had said, like, this is something I think I need to work on within myself in order to move forward with my life, in order to just live a more free and happy life. I knew that he wasn't going to not bring it up again. I felt like telling someone made gave me almost an accountability partner, like he was going to check in on me, things like that. And it's true what you're saying that I'm so lucky that I had someone I felt like I could talk to in this way and expect that kind of response from it's definitely not a given but i really felt like telling him was me making it a part of my actual life and not just a thought in my head and that was going to force me to actually act on it absolutely made it real so mm-hmm. you started with looking at people on social media and finding this volleyball player that expanded into an entire network of people talking about this anti-diet way of living and making peace with your body which led you to chatting with me, which led you to telling your pal and and joining the community of a group coaching program, which is scary and vulnerable in and of itself. Definitely. So it really shows how the power of contextualizing your experience and, and creating normalcy around your struggles to know that you're not going through it alone can build that power inside of you that was already there to move forward and say, I got this and I deserve more and I'm going to find that and, and take action. So it's really cool to see how you just reach one simple reach out mm-hmm. to social media or to a friend can change so much instead of it just staying inside your head. Also speaking is a way of processing. So I'm sure you had a, a very big time like processing it, like a very monumental experience processing all of that, speaking it out loud to a friend. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure it was incredibly emotional. Mm-hmm. I remember, I mean, yeah. I don't know if you remember my first client call specifically, but I remember, I, I think you were the first person I said it out loud to. And so 
it was like when you said, okay, like what's your background? What are you looking to work on? Just a basic like introductory question. It's like, I couldn't even respond. I like tried to get words out and I just started sobbing. I mean, I remember I was just Mm. like, I'm so tired of feeling like my life is controlled by these thoughts of food and dieting. Like I want to live my life without them, but I had never even been asked these very, very minimal. You were not digging deep. You were not poking at any sensitivities. You were asking the bare basics of why have you requested to join this program? What are you experiencing? What would you like to work on? And I like was so overwhelmed by emotion, just trying to express that I almost couldn't. And so it absolutely, for me, talking out loud about it was a form of processing that was very challenging for me at first. I mean, yeah. So what took you from just saying it. And I I do remember many emotional sessions, Mm -hmm. which is healing. What took you from that into, all right, now we got to do the hard work of normalizing foods and eating more and allowing our body to change. Mm -hmm. What was that like moving into those first steps that you had to take and identifying, I got to break free from these things that have been my normal since as long as you can remember. Yeah. Well, at the point that I joined the program, I was really in a routine of restriction and of a full restriction. It's not that I was eating many low calorie diet foods or limiting my types of consumption. It's that I was not consuming and then I was binging and then I was not consuming and I was binging. That was my daily pattern basically. Um, and so the biggest step for me was as, as simple as it sounds, was just forcing myself to eat breakfast and forcing myself to eat lunch and then eat dinner and eat, you know, like just forcing myself to eat routinely throughout the day was a big change for me. And that was definitely the first step I remember tackling. Um, And I remember sending you a text because I was uh, very early on, it was like my first week. And I was like, realized how disconnected I was from hunger and fullness cues, because I had been ignoring both for so long, that I was like, well, I don't feel hungry in the morning. Is it intuitive for me to still eat in the morning? Because if I'm not hungry, is an intuition not to eat? And you explained to me that there is practical hunger that you need to address first, especially when you're so distanced from these natural cues, and that I had to just really focus on eating regularly. And then these types of cues would become easier to understand later on. And so that was definitely my first step was just getting a routine of consumption at regular intervals. That was a big change and where I had to start. So many people, you don't even know how many people think intuitive eating is just impulsively listening to hungerfulness. And then there is that barrier that holds so many people back from exploring this journey where they're like, well, I tried to listen to my body and I don't feel hungry until I binge. (laughs) And it's like, well, before we can even dive into the listening to hunger, fullness signals, we have to get it back. We have to build trust with our body again and have our body trust us back. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what your first few steps were. It was building a consistent, normal routine with eating, which that thus leads us to regulating our appetite. I mean, there are true mm-hmm. hunger, fullness, hormone changes in periods of restriction where body doesn't want to tell our brain that we're full because it's scared we're not going to eat enough. And that's why it can feel like we so quickly go from zero to 100. As you were creating the consistent eating patterns, your appetite, I'm guessing, started to kick in a little bit more. What was that next step for you in transitioning from practically eating to attuning to those signals? How And also, how long did that take? I guess we should start there. Definitely because it was not a habit of mine. It did take me a few weeks to even 
be able to consistently say I'm eating breakfast, I'm eating lunch. I was used to leaving for work without a lunch packed. Like I, I really did not eat until the evenings. That was just the schedule of mine. And so just updating, even ignoring relationship with food problems, just updating my routine to include time in the morning to make food or time at night to pack a lunch for tomorrow or remembering to take that lunch physically. Like there was a lot of just getting these basic changes down that took about three or four weeks just for me to be actively practicing them just for it to really be a routine. And I would say another month until I was really able to start addressing fear foods. I think that was next for me, was the types of foods. I was always in this mentality of like eating a food out of the house. Like if there was a food that I thought was a bad food to have, I had to eat it all so that it was not there tomorrow. And I would start fresh tomorrow. And, you know, it wasn't there and we're fine. And so a big thing I did was not allow myself to eat foods out of the house. I lived right above a grocery store, which was convenient, but I had a rule for myself. I specifically remember ice cream being one of the first ones I'd tackle. I, I had a really, I had a relationship where I had to get to the bottom of that ice cream tub, no matter how full I was, because I needed the ice cream gone. I needed there to be no option to eat it tomorrow. And I- Now or never. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Now or never. And so I think the next step that I can remember was tackling fear foods and specifically not letting myself eat these foods out of the house. If I finished the tub of ice cream the next day, I had to buy another one. That was like a rule I had that I was not allowed to, specifically ice cream, I was not allowed to not have ice cream in my house. That was like, I was like, I'm not, because I knew that's what I was thinking. I knew I was thinking I'm going to get rid of it and then it's not there. And I was like, I need to not allow myself to get rid of it. I need to cut out that possibility. And so the amount of pints of ice cream I went through in those first few months is really jarring. <laughs> Just, I mean, I was single-handedly boosting the economy of Ben and Jerry's in uh, Madrid, but like, it, it was a really, it, that one took a while, but I stuck to it. And I do think that that um, did make a massive change in the end, that I was, I was going through those pints like no other, and I kept replacing them. I kept saying, okay, like, it's still there, though. It's not going to work. And then eventually... I didn't really want to finish it because the reality of my body's interaction with that food is that I, I didn't want that much. I was eating in a binge way, not in an actual craving or volume amount that I wanted. I think that would be about three months that I was refusing to eat food out of my house. It was like the next real step I remember actively integrating was that if I finished a food and I felt any inkling of now that it's not here, I can't eat it in that diet culture way. I replaced it. I was like, this. Mm-hmm. So when you say refusing to eat foods out of your house, you mean like eat it to where it's gone. You yeah. like were keeping it in your house. Okay, yeah. got it. You're like eating it out of, <laughs> eating it to get it out of your house. Yeah. It was no yeah. longer there because I had eaten all of it. And I forced myself to continually replace those foods if I felt like I was coming from that position. To normalize it, mm-hmm. to say it's here now, it'll be here tomorrow, it'll mm-hmm. be here the next day. You can have it and you can have as much as you want. That is really crucial to it's what we call habituation. When you habituate a food as normal as any other food, it loses that novelty. And so were you intentionally eating it every day or were you waiting until you're like, okay, I kind of want it? Was there any sort of routine or ritual to which you were creating the normalcy around this food like ice cream? That was a food that I don't believe I had ever been able to consume in a way that wasn't binge-fueled beforehand. And so when it was in the house, it was going to disappear that night. That was like just like a, a really consistent pattern of mine. It was very rarely something I purchased. And so I would say it was the same. I was eating it every night, but I was also craving it every night. I was having these binge triggers by it every night. Like it, it was 
So it was a routine thing, but I wasn't doing it even when I didn't want it because that day just wasn't coming. I mean, it was just really, this was a food I had restricted so heavily for, you know, over a decade. And and my brain was just like, this is, this is gold. (laughs) Let's go. Yeah. And I had to allow that. I had to like, just continue saying like, all right, it's here. It's, it's Ben and Jerry's time. Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what we call the honeymoon phase where as we start to reintroduce off-limit foods, Mm -hmm. we go through a honeymoon phase where it's exciting. We're eating it every single day. We don't even question it for craving it. We just want it. And Mm -hmm. even personally, when I went through the honeymoon phase, I was like, I don't care if I eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner when I want it, I'm eating it. And that was my way of saying I have unconditional permission to eat it. And that's such a key part here is unconditional permission. And so it's not just the introducing the ice cream. There must have been a lot of mindset shifts that you had to make while eating it, after finishing it, and going to the store to get another one. So in relation to your mindset around these off-limit foods, what changed? I think I was able to call on the reality that I'm a stubborn person for this. And I was like, this Ben and Jerry's will not get me down. Like, we are not going to let Ben and Jerry's win. (laughs) I just know that I I had to tell myself every time it happened that because I was still overeating most of the time, I was eating past a point of fullness or comfort. And I had to just tell myself that, like, if we don't replace it, that's one less day that we're working towards healing our relationship with it. I felt like I had to be moving forward and I had to keep moving forward. And in order to do that, for me personally, it was that I had to not allow these foods to not be in my house if I finished them. That was the real thing I had to cut. How did you get to a place of trusting that you would eventually feel, quote unquote, normal around these foods? I definitely, for the first few months, had a lot of my old diet thinking habits pulling at me saying like, we can go back, we can go on a diet right now, we could do a water fast, we could, you know, we can snap out of this. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't remember where I saw this specifically. But it's like, if dieting worked and brought me the happiness and body comfort that it promised, I wouldn't be where I am right now. I I would not be going through this. So the reality is that I've tried this for 15 years. It has not given me what diet culture promises us it's going to give us. And so let me just try the other option. That was like, I kept having to tell myself, like, if this doesn't work, neither did that. Like, I am not taking a step down if I do not feel like this ends up giving me the success. That's hard to believe it'll give you at the beginning. It's really hard to really trust that ignoring every type of health advice we receive from the media for 10 years is the healthiest thing we can do for ourselves. Um, And so making that shift and just trusting that, um, it was really, I felt like I didn't have anything to lose. It felt like the thing I'd been doing didn't work. If this new thing doesn't work, we're we're back at square one. You know, (laughs) it's not, it's not really that much of a loss. That's awesome. That's a really great mindset to have going into it. And then on top of that, giving yourself the time and space to explore it because you joined back in November 2020. It is now December 10th, I believe is when we're recording this, December 10th, 2021. And it was many months ago that you finished the program, many months ago that you posted in the Societies page that you're like, hey, I'm here's a reflection on where I've been and where I am now. And 
it feeling a lot more at peace. So it really was less than a year, but you gave yourself that time to explore it and to to take those steps patiently and curiously and compassionately mm-hmm. to eat the Ben and Jerry's every day and move on if you want yeah. to. So I already know that so many people listening are like, but it must have affected your weight or your body image in some mm-hmm. way. So I'd love to get into that. How did this journey eating more, eating Ben and Jerry's every day, and on top of that, allowing your body to change as you built back this body trust impact your body image and relationship with your body? So something that I did along with this program that was advised throughout um, is that I cut out weighing myself. I was someone that was a really regular there were long periods of my life that I was weighing myself more than once a day, which is absurd. It doesn't even, it's not even an accurate medical metric to be doing it throughout the day. I don't know where it was coming from, but I remember I was really, really ingrained and I put a lot of value on that number for a long time. And I felt like I, I got rid of my scale about a month in. I had a scale at the beginning and I do remember noticing that my weight had gone up a bit and that gave me this feeling of panic. And when I say a bit, I really mean a bit, a very small amount. But when you're so you know obsessed about this number, that, that very small amount can be enough to make me want to jump ship. And so I ended up getting rid of the scale and buying clothes that felt better on my body. This is something that was not related to a change that the program, but I was wearing clothes that were a bit smaller than my body size. And I realized that I needed to find things that didn't feel as restrictive as they did. And so the combination of losing that scale and finding clothes that just fit me instead of that fit the body size I thought I would maybe one day get to if I found the right miracle diet really allowed me to detach a bit from this idea of being a certain weight or size because I didn't really know my weight. Also, I'm in Spain. The sizes are very different. The numbers. So I that was a little bit I think that helped me a bit. Things here are in kilograms. Things here are in, I mean, the the metrics and the numbers I attach to growing up in the United States are not really physically present here. So that was a little bit of assistance throughout this program was that if I bought new pants, they were on a scale of like zero to 80. And I didn't really know what 64 meant. Like I didn't know. It's like, I can't really say what that is in the sizes I'm used to. And so I was really fortunate in that way to not have those anchoring numbers applicable in the world I was living in while going through this program. That is so evident how it's not about the body size. It's about the belief. It's about the belief of what the number means. And when you have no idea what the number means, it makes you feel no different. You're just like, it's 64, whatever that is. And (laughs) whatever. And on top of that, so many stores do what's called vanity sizing. It's incredibly the opposite of inclusive, I was going to say. What's the, what is that word that I'm looking for? It's exclusive. exclusive. The word we use? I mean, exclusive, yes. <laughs> but I guess I meant like it's, it's like keeping – it's trying to keep their – the people who buy their clothes looking a certain way. Like yeah. they change the sizes usually to make it smaller so that maybe a size 14 – would be really like a size six in U.S. sizes. And that's just because they want their demographic to look a certain way, which is just, uh, it's discriminatory. That's the word (laughs) I was looking for. It's discriminatory. And I think that is just, it it just goes to show that the number sizes, it's, it means nothing. It's the belief that is tied to that. So I know that if you're, if you're open to sharing your story of, 
you know, uncovering your authentic gender identity. Mm-hmm. I would love to talk about how exploring both sexuality, gender identity may have influenced your body image and vice versa. Definitely. So throughout really all of my life, I was aware that I was some part of the queer community. My first memorable crush is Kim Possible. So, you know, <laughs> we <were starting> off <laughs> honestly, with, yes, <laughs> we were starting off with like this lesbian leaning identity. That's kind of how yes. I how I grew up. I was like, I think I'm in this realm. I do think dating women added something interesting with the body comparison um, because I tended to date women that were thinner than me just by coincidence. But that was something that definitely bred a bit of insecurity in me at times. And then as I got older, I started questioning more my gender identity. And I, for about four or five years now, I've been identifying as non-binary and I've just found that that suits who I am a lot better than this idea of being a woman lesbian, that I I felt a lot more seen as a non-binary person and that felt a lot more accurate to my lived experiences. But while going through that, I saw a lot of non-binary people that were, especially people that had my body type, people that had carry body fat on their chest and had this sort of situation being very thin and androgynous in a way that I never was. And I struggled a lot with seeing non-binary representation in this kind of, this, this build that just looked nothing like me. And I felt like I walk around this world seen as a woman and that hurt. And I, I had to really break through that. It's part of this group. I mean, I don't know if you remember, there's a class where, um, there were some people in the group who had their pronouns on their little Zoom um, name. And I was just staring at that the entire session. And then I just said, I was like, I just have to say thank you to the people that put their pronouns in their bio because I've been trying to address this issue from the perspective of someone who was definitely socialized as a woman, thinking that I could talk about this as womanhood and as a woman's issue and all these things and, and work through the issue. And I'm realizing that I can't, that I can't separate this from my gender identity. And I can't separate this from my space I take up in the queer community, and especially being non-binary. Like these are so intertwined. And these little pronouns that people had on the screen, I remember really gave me the sense that I was talking to an audience that would be accepting of me bringing up this overlap that I was dealing with. Um, so yeah, definitely being non-binary heavily influenced my ideas early on of what androgyny looks like and if I want to be androgynous what type of build can that be and I discovered that I was actually harboring a lot of fat phobia towards masculine presentations and I had to really work through that that specifically presenting more masculine I felt like I wasn't allowed to have the large chest I have or maybe have hips or maybe just have this have this body size that performed a biological sex wow so yeah, that, that was a big part of this for me. But I was really fortunate in this group that um, I felt comfortable talking about. It. I remember the day I said that, that I had so much positive feedback from the group and it was so nice. And I wasn't going into that meeting expecting to bring that up at all. It just kind of came out of me. I think we were talking about something to do with body shape or something. And, and I just couldn't avoid the fact that my frustration with my body size and a large part of my issues with my body size stemmed from the idea that I wanted this perceived androgyny to connect to my non-binariness. Super proud of you, first and foremost, for being open to sharing that with our group. I do remember that day because it impacted me as well. It furthered my exploration of 
navigating those topics as a cisgendered woman. I am bisexual and I'm in the LGBTQ community, but transgender individuals face a completely different set of of barriers. So I'm I'm super proud of you for opening it. And I'm just really glad to hear that you felt that we would receive that and that you were safe to share that in the group. And that's all I could ever hope for. So I'm I'm just so glad that you did share that day because it just like you shared and spoke to your friend about your disordered eating, opening up about the body image struggles in relation to presentation of gender identity, I'm sure created another just like verbal validation or normalcy of the experience you were facing. And I want to share some statistics I, I looked up before this call to talk a bit more about the prevalence of eating disorders in LGBTQ communities. So transgender individuals actually experience eating disorders at rates significantly higher than cisgendered individuals. And the um, research shows that beginning as early as 12, gay, lesbian, and bisexual teens may be at higher risk of binge eating than heterosexual peers. And so these factors that play a role in the development of eating disorders can be even more perpetuated within the LGBTQ plus community, such as in the way you maybe are perceived, the way you present yourself. And so did you ever find that, you know, outside of of the identity of, oh, you know, not having the representation outside of maybe the typical androgyny that you had been seeing pre- previously, were there any things within the community that you felt like perpetuated your disordered eating or perpetuates it in general? I think that in certain parts of the LGBT community, there's definitely an expectation of an extremely fit body. I'm actually thinking about gay men in this moment. Three of my closest friends are gay men, and there is an expectation of an extremely minimal body fat percentage in that community. There is blatant fat phobia on their dating apps. There's just like an an extreme level of fat phobia in that subsect. Um, I would say, as someone who's generally been closer to a lesbian orientation, there's a little more body acceptance among lesbians. But when you're talking about transness and you're talking about anything to do with gender, I think so much of that comes from a critique on how you're perceived. And I think so much of fat phobia is a critique on how we're perceived. If it weren't for perception, I don't think there would be much fat phobia at all. I don't think we would be having these internal ideas if it wasn't how we're being looked at. And that just being stacked with how you're being looked at as far as gender goes, I I think they really um, play off each other and can intensify each other. And I know I personally had to detangle fat phobia that I definitely possessed in this time. Like I I had to really think about how the fat phobia that I have internally interacts with my thoughts about my own body or gender or what I think I want. Um, And I realized that in my personal experience, I was really resting on a, I had some fat phobia I had not worked through that was specifically towards masculine presentation. It was this idea that I could not have fat on my body and be masculine. And I had to really break that down because I realized it wasn't that I'm discomfort, like that I have an issue with my physical attributes. And it wasn't that I needed to, you know, have top surgery or certain things that other non-binary people may have to deal with that are completely outside of, you know, what an eating disorder might encompass. Um, But I just did have to work through this idea that 
you can have this sense of masculinity without having to not have any body fat. (laughs) It's like those two things had to be really separated. And so I obviously can't speak for the community as a whole, but I specifically see it targeting masculine parts of the queer community more than others um, in my personal experience and in what I've seen in the gay men that I'm close to. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Because there's, there definitely has been an increase in the normalization or acceptance of curvier bodies and that showing like representing a a womanhood or a femininity about you. So Mm -hmm. I'm really happy that you brought forth the conversation around the way that impacts the the gay male community and the way that more masculine identities can be targeted within eating disorders and perpetuate the eating disorders. And I'm not sure if you listened to my episode with Victoria Wellsby. Victoria Wellsby is a non-binary fat activist. We interviewed a couple months ago. I'll link it in the show notes for anyone listening and I'll, I'll send it to you, Caroline. But they were expressing how for so long they fought their own gender expression and their own gender identity because they thought, well, if I'm fat, I have to then be feminine because mm-hmm. I can't be both not feminine presenting and fat. There almost has to be a justification for one or the other in the presenting to the male gaze. And and they were expressing how that held them back for so long from being their authentic true self because they their own internalized fat phobia. And so being able to unpack that and and really look at it. We're all born fat phobic. You, it's impossible not to in this world. So if anyone's listening like, oh, well, I'm not. I don't have to deal with that. Yes, you do. We all do. We all have it. Even I still have it every once in a while. It's just an automatic thought, unfortunately, in our society. But you can take a step back and look at it and and really expand your network of people in diverse body sizes to normalize it. But that in and of itself you know, can create so many barriers to just being as you are and just showing up authentically. Authenticity is one of my top values. And I I feel like it's so sad when we hold ourselves back from expressing that authenticity because of a societal norm or ideal that is outside of our own being and outside of our own control. And so you kind of touched on this a bit, but when we talk about body image, we talk about it being not necessarily about the body, but about our belief systems. And so What do you feel like was a really key moment for you that transformed your belief that to express yourself, you you couldn't have more of a masculine appearance and and the fat phobic in the fat fat phobic nature of our society? I think that I I talked to um, one of my best friends who's um, a gay man, and I was discussing fat phobia within the queer community in general. And it's something he has also personally struggled with, feeling like um, there was an impossible expectation of a build within his own community. And it's actually very similar to how I started this binge eating recovery journey in that I sought out visual representation of fat queer bodies. I said, I want to be seeing people that I admire that are living the type of life that I think is going to make me happiest. And I want to be seeing them outside of this. The thing that I keep thinking is that I remember noticing that so many of the non-binary influencers I was following were very thin and that I was unconsciously at the time, but I was definitely looking at them in a bit of a fitspo, thinspo element. I was like, I want to look like them and none of them looked like me. 
And so it was changing that. It was saying that I cannot continue to idolize a presentation that I'm only seeing on a body type that I do not have and that I do not desire to change to right now. I, I know that I am, I threw out my goals of changing my body size. And so it was switching from following many thin non-binary queer people to following lots of diverse body sizes in the queer community. And I think just seeing that representation really impacted me because I said, these people look phenomenal. <laughs> Everyone looks great. Yeah. And, they, and they, this is something I would be so happy to look like. And this is something I would be so happy to embody. And so it was just widening that scope again through social media was my first step was really saying, I just want to be forced to acknowledge the existence of these thoughts, these ideas, these people, these presentations in my day-to-day life. I love that. Social media perpetuates eating disorders and we can turn it into something else, you know, when, yeah, when we take back that, our own power to cultivate, curate our social media feed and fill it with the things that fill us up and the the life and the values that we want to be surrounded by. Mm -hmm. So that is so important. I love that you've been highlighting that throughout this episode. So I definitely want to reflect before we wrap up on some of the goals you created when you applied for the group, if you don't mind us sharing. Absolutely. I do not remember them, but I'm excited to hear. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it was November 2020. Take us back to that space. (laughs) (laughs) And you specifically wrote, quote, I want to stop wasting so much energy and mental space on food diet thinking. I want to have more consistency in my eating habits, and I want my relationship with food to no longer be a fight. So in saying that, now here you are, December 2021. Where are you now? Did you accomplish those goals? Definitely. I definitely did. I would say it was about a seven or eight month journey for me to get at a place where that was pretty stable, those goals for me. but. Food is definitely a part of my life, but it's not a battle in my life at this point. It's really something that I integrate comfortably without overthinking. And I don't feel like I am constantly trying to think of the next time I'll eat, the next way I'll eat. These things that I used to just have this background noise that I remember just wanting to get rid of. I definitely have cut that. And it has just allowed me to be so much more present in my life and with the people I love and just feel like I'm experiencing things when they're happening instead of having this voice in the back of my head constantly running with these distractions about food thoughts. And I I couldn't be more grateful for your program and for everything this past year, because it's just been such a, I'm living a different life now than I did for 15 years. And in in all the best ways, it's really so nice. I feel emotional right now, but I I can't even put into words how significantly this has impacted my life and how much better off I am and all of the goals I set and then goals I didn't even set out to really tackle. Things came up along the way and I really do feel like I'm at a place of closure with all of them at this point. And that's so nice. Wow. Oh my gosh. I'm so proud of you and you deserve all the credit in the world because I could be no help if you didn't put in the work and you didn't face the darkness ahead of, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going. Mm -hmm. It's just before even seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. So you have come so far and I'm so proud of you. And I'm, I'm still so proud of how you continue to challenge yourself and put yourself out there in ways that align with your values and expand your, your horizons, expand the world and the just the world in which you live in that are filling your cups. So 
If you could leave a listener here, specifically someone in the LGBTQ community who may be currently struggling and is scared to take the leap into getting help because of their fears of losing control with their food and their body image, what would you leave them with? I think that the thing that really led me to give this a chance was a real strong sense of like, what do I have to lose? Like just thinking about how much I had struggled going through the same diet patterns for so long and had not arrived to a place where I was happy with my relationship with my body or with food. Like, what do you have to lose <laughs> with giving this a shot? Because, I mean, you're hearing it from me. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've got some kind of circle around you in social media or otherwise where you're looking at intuitive eating and anti-diet nutritionists and influencers and all of these people are telling you that this can work and it goes against everything we know but everything we know hasn't worked (laughs) so I think it's really just worth giving yourself a shot to overcome this and get to a place where you're not having to have a life consumed by these diet culture thoughts anymore I'm so thankful I did I am so so thankful I did Oh my gosh. I'm so thankful you did too. <laughs> uh, it just makes me so happy. It's all I could ever hope is that I can give someone who was once where I was as well, the gift of living their life and and having those experiences create memories that matter, that are are more aligned with your values and your purpose here on earth than what you look like or mm-hmm. how many grams of proteins in the <laughs> cupcake you just ate. Like who freaking cares? Um, So I appreciate that. And I'm sure so many people listening right now are feeling really touched by your story. So I can't thank you enough for being here and being open to share and be vulnerable. And um, I'm excited to see where life takes you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode and a big thanks to my past group coaching client, Caroline, for being open to sharing again. I really enjoy sharing past group coaching clients on this podcast because if you're listening and any of the conversations that we have here feel out of reach because they're shared from a professional lens from myself or from those that I interview, I want you to know that there are people who recently went through this journey just like you're going through right now, who were struggling and now have come to a place of food freedom where they can trust their body, make peace with their body, and live a life aligned with their values. So although I've been there before, I also understand that it can feel very different to hear it from a dietitian with a master's in this, but uh, I hope that connecting to these stories of past clients inspires you to get the help that you need and move towards a life where you're no longer at war with your body and food. So thanks y'all for listening. If you're interested in Behind the Binge Academy, the same group coaching program that Caroline went through, you can go to my Instagram binge.nutritionist and apply through the link in my bio, or you can head straight over to behindthebinge.com backslash academy to apply and we'll get you started. We will get you on this journey to food freedom so you can stop binge eating, cultivate a healthful life free from guilt, stress, and obsession, and move on forever <laughs> if you know, you'd know you like to. I assume everyone here would like to. So let's work together. I'd love to help you. You don't have to have a diagnosis. You absolutely don't have to have a diagnosis because me and Caroline both are people who worked through this 
without having a diagnosis, without being able to get a diagnosis for a multitude of reasons. So you don't have to wait until you're quote unquote sick enough. That doesn't exist. If you feel you have an issue with your relationship with food, that is the time. There's no better time to get started on your journey. Let's go and I'll see you inside. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye everyone.